Hey, um, I mentioned it. Yeah, tonight, it's, it's think of this as family night, all right? I was joking around with the whole idea of there's dumb questions, and I don't think that you guys ask dumb questions. If, if the question is pointless, and it's meaningless, and it's just to show off your intelligence or to try to make me look dumb, look, I make myself look dumb enough on my own. So if that's your motive, then it's a dumb question. Can I just throw that out there? But aside from that, I really want you to have an opportunity to ask the questions that are on your mind. And uh, like I said, I may have to tell you, you know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question. doesn't mean the answer is not there. I fully believe the answer is there. I just need to be able to, to do some research on it and come back. But um, yeah, I mean, sometimes we'll sit down for meals with my kids and they'll just fire questions at us. So that's kind of what we're driving at here. Like Joshua today asked me, uh, what did he say? He said, Daddy, if... If there was no candy or sugar in the world, would we all die? And I said, I don't think so. And then he came back and he was like, but don't vegetables and fruits have some sugar in them? Don't, we need, don't our bodies need sugar? And I was like, man, yes, so maybe. So there you go. So open it up. Any, anybody want to go first? The first question is always the hardest because it's like, I, I, well, I've got a question, but I don't know if it's a first question kind of question. Who's going to go first? Rip the Band-Aid off. All right, Michael Graham. Speaking of Michael Graham, this coming Thursday morning, Michael, where are you going to be? Saddleback College. Saddleback College, right? We're going to be back on campus this Thursday, 9.30 to 12.30 is what we've been averaging. And uh, this week, our question is going to be, what are you thankful for? Or are you a thankful person? Some iteration of that. But uh, we want you to come out and hang out with us and be there at Saddleback. So, Michael, thank you for that transition. That was so good. Um, we didn't even set that up. It's just God is sovereign, and you were the first person to raise your hand. So, thank you. Yeah, go for it. What are some... Cause Last Thursday after we finished, Nathan and I went and talked to some of the Mormons that arrived on campus. What are some of your best strategies for combating Mormons or just talking to them? Because they often yeah. get us confused in their confusion. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. They often get us confused in their confusion. Yeah, it's, you know, Ron Rhodes, just to, for a resource for you guys in our bookstore, has books that are, are excellent in engaging uh, cults. Um, he's got one on Mormons. He's got a, a, a thicker one. He's got a, a skinnier one as well. But um, yeah, so if you go to our bookstore, look for Ron Rhodes is the author and his books on, on defending the faith with cults, with Mormons, with others as well. Um, it, he gives a great point and he says, when you're, whenever you're engaging with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whatever it may be, stick to the Bible. Don't get distracted. Don't, don't leave the word of God. Stick to what the word of God says. And the, the biggest fundamental problem with Mormonism, with Jehovah's Witness, uh, teachings and ideology is that it comes back to a works-based religion. And even when we were at Saddleback and we were, you guys, Nathan, where, where are you? So these two Mormons were, they had this girl pinned down and they were just going at her, trying to, to convince her that she should go to hell with them. Um, and Nathan took a box of donuts and just like barged his way in and was like, hey, do you guys want some donuts? Oh, and here's some flyers to third nine, by the way. Um, if, if you want to come to our church, it was awesome. It was great. It's pushing back the, the gates of hell. But um, they gave their own flyer, right? And up at the top of that, it was a quote from Doctrines and Covenants, which is one of their books that they claimed is, is on the same level of scripture. And in, in that book, 
It was a, a statement of, if you want peace with God, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And that's, that's what they're passing out on campus. It's all about peace is a result of action. It's a result of our works. It's a result of us doing things. And so it's, it's to come back to a gospel that they would say, oh yeah, we're Christians, because that's the thing with Mormons, right? They want to be known not as, as Mormons. They want to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They want to be in, included in the, the, the umbrella of Christianity. So to come back to the very basics of justification through faith alone by grace alone, and to, to call them to the reality of that that's not what you teach. That's not what you ascribe to. To, to get into the arguments about you know, the, the deity of Christ and things like that, those can be helpful. But at the same time, that those guys are, are that's what they're hammered on and what they're trained in. So it's not that they're going to ever convince you that the, the Bible is wrong, but they're, they're, you're not going to win their arguments because they're sitting there with their, their seminary, quote unquote, profs that are, are driving into their minds their strategy for combating John 1 and, and other passages like that. They're helpful, but really go, I would go after the gospel. And that is, you know what? The, the key difference between me and you is you believe in a gospel that's works-oriented, that you have to earn your way into a status and into a, a particular position in heaven. My Bible doesn't teach that. The, the Bible that, that we believe in, that the, the, the church believes in, the Protestant Christian church believes in, doesn't teach that the gospel is works-oriented. For by grace alone, through faith alone, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I mean, we can go, Pastor Mike brought it up even out of Galatians this morning, right? That it's, it's no one is justified by works of the law. Um, so, I, I, you know, again, it's, 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 it's hard. I, I think I made the comment when we were at Saddleback. I, I, I honestly said I wish there was a tent with Muslims uh, that was set up on campus rather than Mormons. And here's why I say that, because the Mormons and the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses specifically are so insidious in the way that they try to pass themselves off as part of Christians, as, as putting themselves off using similar language that we use, that they deceive countless numbers into following after a teaching that will not save. Um, and so, I, 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 like I said, I'd, I'd rather it be a tent with the Islamic Student Union sitting out there trying to convince people that the Quran is true and that Allah is the only true God. Then there's a difference. They can see a difference between what we're doing over here with our tent at Third Nine and, and with what they're doing. And then it's up to us to be effective evangelists. The, the, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, it, it really, it, it, it does raise a righteous anger in me because they're, they're just insidious in, in their deception. Um, yeah, does that help? Okay. Yeah, Adam. <laughs> if the mics get laborious, we don't need to do the mics. But, Cody, I appreciate your effort, man. It was just uh, something that I've noticed more frequent, just since we were on the topic, based off of Michael's question, is I know that the, the Mormons are now calling themselves Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or whatever. Like, right. That's what they're sticking to at this point. Right. And it's something that's been really bothering me too because it's like I've been coming across them and I'm like yeah I'm a Christian one thing that I encourage the people in this room is the Bad Theology on Mormonism series that Pastor Mike yes. did yes. that was one that was really helpful for me to be like okay this is the difference between yeah. our faith and the Mormons and how they added like 600 pages to the Bible and all these other yes. great facts so anyone that's more interested in that faith I definitely encourage you to look up that series. Yes. And that's on focal point. You it's free. You can download it. You can listen to the whole thing. It's also, I think that series is still on our, our website. I don't think they've archived, archived it. That's a weird word. Archived it. 
um, off of our website. I think you can go back on it and, and stream it from there. So, uh, that, yeah, Bat Theology. And, that, it, and that's a, a great – it was a class series that Pastor Mike did. And it, he covers Mormonism. He covers uh, Jehovah's Witness. He covers Church of Scientology, Christian Science. He covers all, a, a, a broad scope on that. But, again, with, with most of these cults, it's going to come back to – if, if they're wanting to argue with you that, no, we're, we're really the same, we just have these extra teachings, no, foundationally we're not the same. Foundationally, my gospel says that your gospel is wrong, and that that's, a, that's a problem, right? And that's, that's insurmountable um, for us. One of us has to give ground on that. Other questions? Yeah, Alex. Alex, I gotta get ready for this one, man. I'm wondering. I actually, uh, I have two questions to ask, actually. Okay. Uh, so you know that in the Bible, um, you know, Jewish people are called to be God's chosen people and all uh-huh. that. And so now that has switched around because Christ has come to the world and He has basically kind of split the church between Jewish Judaism and Christianity, kind of ish. Okay, let me yeah. bookmark that for a second. Keep going. Um, so if a uh, a Jewish culturally or religiously person becomes a Christian, uh-huh. should they follow that old law, or should they just, you know, do what the Christian church is telling them to follow? Kind of? Okay, so let me address the first part there. Um, Israel is still the people of God, okay? The, the church has been grafted in, Paul says in Romans, that the church has been grafted in to, to the, the natural tree, right? That the natural tree right now is, is not bearing fruit, that Israel has, they rejected Christ, they rejected the, the apostles, Paul turned away from uh, the synagogues and, and went to the Gentiles, right? That, that happened. We're in the, the dispensation, which just means that the time of, the set, the unique time of the, the church right now, that's the, the age that we're in. But God's not done with, with Israel. God still has a, a future for Israel, a plan for Israel that, that is unique, that's distinct from the church, that there are promises that will be fulfilled with with Israel that are unique from those promises that he has from the church. And that's all going to come about with the, the end times. With the, when, when Christ returns, the first thing that he's, that's going to happen is the church is going to be raptured, okay? Caught up with him in the air together. And, and no, the Bible never uses the word rapture, but it's described for us, the sound of the trumpet, the church will be caught up in the air uh, with him and will go to be with him. The next thing that's going to happen is the tribulation, the, the seven-year period, right? When the Antichrist is going to rise to power. Midway through that, initially he's going to make a treaty with Israel, and Israel's going to think, this guy's great, but halfway through that seven-year period, three and a half years in, he's going to commit the abomination of desolation. He's going to go in. He's not only going to break the treaty with Israel, but in the rebuilt temple, which hasn't been built yet, but will at that point, he's going to sacrifice a pig on the altar. And you all know that that, that's a, 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 that is an abomination to the Jewish people. So that's going to be the beginning of the intense persecution against Israel and, and, uh, and against the the people of God that are, that are here on earth at that point. Um, that's going to be to prepare because God's going to have sealed 144,000 Jewish people during that time who are going to serve as, as his witnesses, as his examples as well. Um, and then ultimately after the seven year period, Christ comes back. He kills the antichrist, kills the false prophet, imprisons Satan for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom where Christ and the church are reigning in and the people of God, Israel, are living in the millennial kingdom, okay? At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is unleashed for a, a short amount of time. Christ then comes back, battle of Armageddon. He's able to deceive some. Battle of Armageddon, which isn't much of a battle because scripture says he comes down and, and takes Satan out, right? So this isn't even a, Satan's not even going to be able to make a stand at that point. He's gone. 
and then the new heavens and new earth are on the scene, okay? So all that to say, there's still a future for Israel. In fact, we just read about it recently in Jeremiah chapter 39. You know, it may not be 39. Forgive me. Uh, it's in the 30s. See, this is, the, I'm not Pastor Mike. Um, but in, in the 30s where, where God tells Jeremiah the prophet, he's talking about the Davidic covenant. And he says, look, if, if you can break my covenant with the day and with, the, with night, basically with sundown and sun up, if you can stop that, if you can see that, that the sun fails to rise, then I will break my covenant with David. But he's not going to do that. And, and what he's saying is, is it's sure. So even though right now there's not a king on the Davidic throne because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, there will be. So that, that is still the throne of Israel, the Davidic throne. There's not another dynasty that's going to rise up. During that millennial kingdom and then into the new heavens and new earth, Christ will reign on the throne of David at that point. Um, so that's yet to be fulfilled. But to your question about uh, what should somebody who's a Jew do, turn to Acts chapter 15. Let me tell you one thing a, a Jew who becomes a believer shouldn't do or any of the believers shouldn't do, and that is something that's been somewhat popular these days in uh, the podcast circles with a, uh, one particular uh, pastor um, from Atlanta, and that is he, he's saying that we need to unhitch ourselves. That's the language that's being used. Unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, that we don't need the Old Testament, that we don't need the law, that we don't need any of those things. And whether his heart was different in his intentions or not, it was, it was just an, it was an irresponsible way to put it. Um, and I've listened since to some podcast interviews with him and things like that. We still need the Old Testament. But Acts chapter 15 informs us uh, on this question because the, that was a, a question that faced the, the Jerusalem church. They, Paul was going out and sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Timothy was going out with them, sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Gentiles were being saved, right? And the, the Jewish believers who were the, originally the, the foundation and seed of the church, right? The, they were the, the followers of Christ, the ones that were there. They were Jews nationally. And so they're thinking through their Old Testament lenses. Now there's Gentiles who are becoming believers, and they're asking that same question. Should we hold them to the law? Do they need to obey the Old Testament law? One of the things that they were throwing out there was circumcision, right? That, that was a big thing that they were asking about that was enormously significant under the Old Testament law, but not as significant anymore uh, now that, that Christ was on the scene. And so um, what they do is they, they send a letter, and they send a letter by the, uh, by the apostles, um, Acts 15, verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by pl placing a yoke, which is the law, the Old Testament law, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. will. Jump down to verse 19. Therefore, this is the, the Jerusalem council. James is saying this. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble the Gentiles that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, verse 20, but should write to them, here's their instruction to the, the believer that, that comes to faith in Christ, abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and, and from blood. 
For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in the Sabbath in the synagogues. So he's saying there, there are some things that we would encourage them to, to follow, to obey, to, to abstain from. So for a Jew coming in to, to realize Christ, as, as Savior, do they still need to follow the law? We would say no. And, and the, the, the Acts Council would say no. And, and part of Peter's argument was, look, we're not even doing what we're asking them to do. Um, what was the intention of the law? Galatians chapter 3. What was the, the purpose of the law? What? Yes, right? The law is, is that mirror for us to look in and go, oh my goodness, I am hideous, right? That's the point of the law. It's our tutor to, until what? What does Paul say in, in Galatians 3? The law was our tutor until Christ. Until Christ came. But now that Christ is here, we now no longer need to look to the law because the one the law was pointing to has come. The one that, because the law was showing us, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. Christ came and what did he do? He, he did it perfectly, like Pastor Mike talked about this morning. And so the law was pointing us to Christ. Now Christ is here and so our faith now is in Christ for our righteousness. Um, and so the law as believers in Christ, it's, it's purpose to point us to Christ. Do we still need to be obedient? Yeah, absolutely. We still need to be obedient. There's plenty of new Testament passages that even point back to the law and say, there, there's some things that you still need to be doing, but as a whole, the law has been set aside. If, if that makes sense. It was Jeremiah 33, 14 through. I knew it was in the thirties. Thank you. 33, 14 through 26. Awesome. That's the don't break the covenant with the night or the thank you. You had a second question. Yeah. This is bonus, because I already answered two questions for you. I, it's all right. Uh, the, Bring it. The first one was actually not a question. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Fair enough. But I still answered two questions, whether you asked them or not. So, um, <laughs> no. um, so if, um, let's just say if a Christian brother or sister in Christ decides to go to a church that you've heard about that is not very strong. Yeah. Like, like for instance, like uh, they legalize, they allow gays to be whatever they want. Okay. And they allow, like, bars to come in. And, and they smoke them. marijuana during yeah. the service. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know this church, and, but okay. Uh, if, for some reason, you try to warn that person, uh -huh. like, you know, hey, you know, if you're going to this church, I mean, and you ask them, like, a few questions, like, you know, why do you have to come here? Yeah. And if they're being aggressive, right. like, showing some kind of, like, distant yeah. to that yeah should we as christians you know should we still be with them or should we because right. even the bible says like you know if it, if a person is uh you know letting you down you know remove away from them kind of ish does that make sense well there's church discipline in the scriptures and that, that's different that would be at the level of, of church leadership in a, in a case like that i would say first um and and this is something that i was guilty of when i was younger we need to be careful not to to, to name call and, and to, to call out names unless there's a really good reason to. Um, if a brother comes to you and says, hey, look, I'm thinking about going to this church where they smoke marijuana in the pulpit and they drink and they do all these things. Yeah, I would I would say, I, you know what, I, I don't know if that's the, the wisest decision. I think if it's a if it's a one-on-one, -on -one, they've come up to you and they've approached you and said, this is something I'm thinking about. Can I get your counsel on that? Yeah, we want to speak truth in love. We want to be bold. We want to We want to speak out against those things. But one of the things I really appreciate about Pastor Mike is you never question where does he stand on an issue. And you can tell what the difference is between Pastor Mike and some of these other pastors that are out there and what they're saying. Like Pastor Mike is not going to stand up and say that he's going to unhitch from anything, right? Um, but he's not going to stand up there and, and, and name drop and call them out and say this person's wicked and all the people in their church are, are deceived. 
I did that with a cult earlier because a cult is, is we need to do that with things that, that are at, at that level. With that situation, man, I, I, would, I would speak truth and love to the brother. I would say, you know what, I, I don't think this is the wisest decision for you. I'm concerned for you. Um, I, I, maybe you should go and sit down and talk with one of the pastors here at Compass before you make that decision. I know they'd love to talk to you. I think that would be a, a great avenue for you to take on that. If they say, sorry, dude, this is a decision I'm making, peace out, well, then they've, they've kind of already separated themselves from you at that point. Um, but I, I would certainly, in, in this context, if it's somebody in, in this room that's done that, I would make sure their small group leader knows, and I would make sure that I know um, so that we can try to pursue them. What else? Such a strong start, and now we're just screeching to a heart. Halt. Uh, I'll ask one uh, on of my group. Um, so we have been talking about this a lot throughout the semester. Um, right. With apologetics being the focus and the idea of apologetics being uh -huh. that it would be equipping us to evangelize. Yeah. Um, and finding that our, um, I think our reluctance or our challenge in evangelism is a lack of compassion for the lost. Yeah. Um, so how do we go about cultivating that? What... Yeah. What ways, tools, how can we develop within ourselves a greater compassion and love for those who don't know Christ? Right. Spend time with them. I mean, that's honestly, guys, that's the biggest thing. You, you can't, just like if you struggle with lust and you go to bed at night and you pray, God, I don't ever want to struggle with lust again, so please let me wake up in the morning and never struggle with lust again. Good night. Amen. And you wake up in the next morning severely disappointed because you realize that you're still going to struggle with lust, Right. Because that's not how God works. He's, he's not a, a magic genie waiting for us to rub the lamp in a certain way. And so it's the same thing with a, a love and a heart for the lost. If you want a love and a heart for the lost, you've got to go out and spend time with the lost. You've got to give yourself over to them. I mean, we're, we're doing this Saddleback thing, guys. Yes, to reach the students on Saddleback, but I'm doing this so that you guys have a venue to put this into practice. And, and we've got you know, five or six students that are faithfully showing up. And I, I get maybe you've got conflicts. I, I understand that. But you know, we've got other opportunities and ways for you to spend time with, with people who are lost. It, you're not going to develop a compassion and love for somebody that you don't know. It's, it's not just going to overflow just randomly. When I met my wife and I stared her down because I was like, wow, she's gorgeous. And I, I want to know her and, and spend time with her. If I had just walked away and hung out in my dorm for the rest of my college career and just prayed every night, God, I want a compassion and a heart and a love for Amanda. And I, I really hope that she has one for me too. But that's what we're doing when we're sitting here in our, at our homes and in our cars and we're saying, God, I want a better heart for the lost. And then all we do is hang around and save people. Um, it, it's not going to happen. So you've got to start getting to know them. And you've got to start putting names with people who are lost and care about that person because you're beginning to, to learn more about that person. Like one of the things I love right now about Saddleback is we've got students that are uh, undeniably, unquestionably unbelievers that continue to come back to our tent every time that we're there and that love coming up and talking to us and will disagree with us. But we're getting to know them and we're, we're, we know their names now. So we see them coming and we're able to greet them by name and talk with them. And we do care about them and, and we do want them to come to Christ. Uh, so if, if you think about, man, I, I want to develop a heart for the, the lost and you're not spending time around anyone who's lost, it's not going to happen. I'm not saying you've got to go door to door, knocking on doors and, and evangelizing people. I, I mean, sometimes that's effective and some people do great at that and praise God for that. But I'm saying, you know, even be strategic uh, on where you guys go and grab coffee. 
you know, if, if you're in the same coffee shop every single week, start to get to know the baristas behind the counter a little bit more than them knowing what your name is and what your drink is when you walk in. Um, I know Cody would really appreciate that because you guys go into his Starbucks and I'm sure he's like, man, I, I, I want to know you more. Um, but no, develop relationships with people where you are so that you can begin to care about them and pray for them. And that's another thing too, is, is praying for those people by name is huge, absolutely enormous. Uh, John Dixon wrote a book called The, the uh, Best Kept Secret of, of Christian Mission, I think is what it's called. John Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N. Um, and in that book, he talks about prayer. And he says, look, praying for the lost is, is not passive. It's, you're, you're actively engaging in evangelism, even in your prayer life, because it's laying the foundation. And, and we believe in a God who does respond and, and answer prayers. But again, you, you have to know the people that you're praying for. You have to be able to, to, to know those names. And yeah, to, to throw out a prayer like, God, save more people through the church in Boise. That's great. But when, when Cody and, and when Kate go up to Boise and they're living there on the ground and they're meeting the people and, and meeting neighbors and not, they're going to have a much more effective evangelistic prayer life for those people than I can here because they're going to be doing life with them and living that, with them and, and, and loving them in that sense. Good question. Any follow-up on that at all? Yeah, Caitlin. Well, it's related to evangelism. So I was curious in general, for example, my coworkers, um, typically I've tended to be someone who right off the bat quickly I'd want to try to share the gospel with someone. Uh-huh. But I also know there's the approach of developing more of a relationship with them, yeah. maybe expressing more of a care for them, and then sharing and maybe know more about them and where they're coming from. Right. So I was curious, what are your thoughts in general of, of that? I know there's prayer involved and wisdom, but... Right. Um, there's one coworker I know I shared like right off the bat with her and I was really passionate about it. And I mean, I think I was gentle, but mm-hmm. I just think now that I know her, I realized she was way harder than I thought she was. And I just don't know if that was the most effective way to go about it. Just right off the bat with her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gotta be wise when Jesus sent out the disciples, he instructed them and he said, uh, you need to be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. So, um, in that sense, I think it's, we, we need to use discretion, and I, I think he gives us that, that ability to read a situation, to read a person. Um, I think our problem, though, by and large, and I would imagine the problem of most of us in this room, is that we err too far on the side of relational, quote-unquote, evangelism, and not enough on the side of, I, I need to, to share the gospel with you. I mentioned Matt Chandler earlier. Guys, I, I, I actually, I love Matt Chandler. I love his preaching. I cut my teeth on his preaching. I used to want to be him. Um, honestly, I was like, I want to be the next Matt Chandler. And then somebody told me you can't. And I said, okay, fine. Um, but Chandler, all that to say, this is coming back to your question. Chandler, when he was saved and he tells this story as part of his testimony, he was playing football and, and the first day of off season practices, he went in and, and was in his locker and changing. And he looked next to him and there's this gigantic guy next to him and he's overwhelmed because he's an underclassman. And the guy looks at me, he goes, I need to share the gospel with you. You let me know what a, a good time for you is. And that was his first interaction with this guy. And this guy ended up sharing the gospel with him. And Matt wasn't saved right there on the, on the spot, but he ended up going to church with the guy and, and building the relationship with them through that. So, you know, the, 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 the quote, preach the gospel at all times, if, if necessary, use words. The follow-up to that is what? It's always, when is it necessary? And it's every time, right? We always, Paul says in Romans 10, uh, 14 and 15, Back, back up in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But then he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so we've got to get the gospel out. And I think that's the thing that I would encourage you with is whether it's right off the bat or not, I, you just need to, to not be at, at ease with that relationship until the gospel has been shared. Um, and, and when you do share it, you know, I, I don't know the rest of the story with this guy with, with Matt Chandler, but he was winsome enough with the guy with, with Matt and loving and compassionate enough with Matt that Matt was like, yeah, I'll go to church with you. Yeah, sure. Let's go. Let's, let's check it out. So keep that balance too, that when you share it, share it in a way that, you know, you're adorning the doctrine of God, so to speak, like Paul told um, Titus, you know, you want, you want to make Christianity look beautiful, right? Um, so share it, get to that. Again, don't be comfortable with that relationship until you've gotten to the point where you, you have shared the gospel. At that point, if, if you in the, the integrity of your heart can say, I've, I've done what I'm called to do, Romans 10, and I've done it in a way that, that is honoring to the Lord. Uh, in other words, I haven't been the, the turn or burn guy on the street corner with a giant sign, but I've done it in a way that I feel like is winsome. And, and then they, they reject you, they spurn you. You know, again, you can't bear that weight, that burden, right? That, that's where the, the sovereignty of God is a comfort to us in the process of evangelism. Some people say, well, you believe in the sovereignty of God. You clearly don't believe in evangelism. And I would say, no, it's, it's exactly the opposite. I don't go home and have to bear the burden of the fact that I failed if somebody rejects me because I know that God is sovereign. That frees me up to share the gospel with as many people as I possibly can. So I would say, yeah, it's, it's not a blanket, you know, always share it right off the bat, always wait three conversations in, use your discernment, use the God, what God's giving you, to, you to, to read that situation, pray for that discernment going into that situation. But then when you do share it, make sure that you do share it. But then when you do share it, make sure that you share it in a way that, again, you're saying, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I want to make him look desirable and good. Um, not in the name and claim it kind of way. Hey, trust Jesus and all your problems will go away, right? No, you want to be accurate to what it is. And the gospel is inherently offensive. We're not going to be able to avoid offending. But um, you don't have to bear that burden of saying, but what if they, what if they reject me? You've done what you're, you're called to do, and God's pleased with you in that. Good question. What else? Yeah, you had one. Yeah, so in regards to evangelism, it's along the same lines. The microphone's coming, by the way. In regards to evangelism, uh-huh. and so right now in pop culture, uh, homosexuality is a really, really big hot topic, right. and it seems like there's so much acceptance just right. and a lot of praise over coming right. out and being your true self. Yeah. How would you encourage us to be able to come mm. across in, in evangelism, yeah. not speaking to them as holier than thou? Right. Because these people, a lot of them have relationships, families, right. lives, husbands, wives. Right. To go on up to them and say mm-hmm. to them, hey, listen, you're in sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no happy way that they're going to respond. How, yeah. But how yeah. we're called to, to evangelize them. Right. First thing, let me make undeniably clear. Homosexuality is defined clearly by God as sin. Okay? There's, there's no argument against that. It's defined as old, in the Old Testament as sin. It's defined in the New Testament as sin. You, you cannot, there's no, cat, there's no out on that. Okay? We can't apologize for that. It's biblical. It's true. Let me deal with the, the, the issue of evangelism, though, on this. There are, any time that you go to in, engage somebody in, in evangelizing, witnessing to them, you're, you're walking into a landmine field, a minefield, okay? Um, and those minefields are going to be those subjects like homosexuality. It's going to be 
creation versus evolution. It's going to be, are you, did you vote for Trump? Uh, it's going to be ridiculous things that people are going to want to divert from what you're really after, left and right, left and right, left and right. And here's what I, I often tell people. We've got to be careful not to be distracted by the minds around us and, and still go after the person that we're trying to rescue from the middle of the minefield, okay? So I can debate somebody about creation versus evolution, and if, if I end up convincing them that, yes, okay, intelligent design and, and God's the creator of the universe, and they walk away and that's my last interaction with them, they're still going to hell just like they were at the beginning of that conversation because I haven't gotten to their real need, which is the gospel. And so it, it's the same thing with homosexuality. If I convince somebody who's the most openly pro-homosexual person, gay themselves, out publicly, everything else, if I get them to the point where they're like, you know what, this is wrong, I, I'm in sin with, with my homosexual relationship, I need to repent from that, confess from that, and, and be done with it, but I don't ever get to their need for Christ, which is bigger than their homosexuality, it's, it's the sin that is all-encompassing with the person. If I never get there, then I, I haven't done anything for them. They're, they're, they're just a, a more moral person that's still on a path to hell at that point. So as best you can, the temptation is there because as believers, we're zealous for the holiness of God. And so the temptation is, is there for us to say, you know what, you, you've got a, a massive wound in, in, on your person, so to speak, that's, that's this blatant sin that's oozing and pussy and gross, and right, it's, it's right there and I want to deal with that. But their, their big need is this arm is off and they're hemorrhaging blood out of this arm. So it's like, okay, we'll deal with this in time. Yes, it needs to be dealt with. But, but their bigger need is we got to go after them with just their need for the, the gospel in general. That, hey, look, the, the Bible teaches us that all mankind is alienate, alienated from God. It, that, that everyone has, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in a context like that, when, when somebody has a hot button issue, get off that issue as quickly as you can. And so if that issue is homosexuality, it, it, by transitioning back to just the concept of sin in general, you, you're not condoning their lifestyle. You're not saying it's okay for you to be a Christian and to be gay and just run wild. But what you're doing is you're going back to what their real need is. And you, you're, you're being that, you know, that field surgeon out there on the battlefield with them and diagnosing what the real problem is, which is they're a sinner. And hopefully you can get anybody to, to that point of saying, yeah, I've done some things that are wrong, right? And that's one of the things I love about Ray Comfort when, in his approach. When he does go back through the Ten Commandments, he'll have some people go, well, no, I've, I've never had a lustful thought in my life. And he doesn't go, well, you're a liar. He, he goes, okay, fine, fine. He moves on to the next one. He goes, well, have you ever told a lie? You know, have you ever um, stolen anything? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? And he, he, what he's doing there is he's not getting held, tripped up on, on the landmines. He's got his focus on the person that needs rescuing. And he's, he's going after diagnosing the real problem, which is you've got a sin problem. You're alienated from God. We've got to deal with that. Christ is the answer. If, if, and, and that's the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to save them. That's the only thing that's going to transform them. Because we can't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. We can't expect an unbeliever to, to, to jump on board with our morality and our stand, sense of morality. They're not going to be able to get there, right? So we've got to get them to the place of now they're, they're a new creation in Christ. They're a believer. And then at that point, now their eyes are going to be open. The Holy Spirit is indwelling them. And that's the key because that's the power to life change. It's not my ability to convince somebody that, that something's right or wrong. It's that it's the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them and beginning to go to work to clean house, just like he does on all the rest of us. And at that point, then we're going to be able to, to get into the, the conversations and the counseling and everything else on, okay, we need to talk now about your life and what your life looks like. Because the call now as a believer, which you're saying you are, is to be in submission to God's word. And so let's begin to, to work towards that end.
Does that make sense? Cool. Other follow-up questions on that? Yeah. Cody's coming. You need the, the coconuts, like in uh, Monty Python? Yes. All right. Okay. So um, a little context is I've lost a scary amount of people this last year. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. What happens when mental illness creates a boundary of evangelizing? Yeah. Yeah, no. Specifically suicide. Yeah. I appreciate your heart on that. Um, number one, let me, let me tell you, and, and this is different, the, the Catholic Church, some Catholic Church doctrine will teach that suicide is, is an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. That's not in the Bible anywhere, okay? Um, and so I, I, that's, let me remove that burden. The, the act of taking one's life is not something that separates you from God, okay? Um, mental illness and, and this is, is, is so such a big thing, probably something that's, that's touched everyone in this room. Uh, there are, are situations wherein we look at somebody and, and whether they have the, the full mental capacity to be able to understand the gospel um, is beyond our scope to be able to, to really tell whether or not. And in, in that sense, I'm not going to stand up here and, and point my finger and, and condemn um, what I would say for, for what do I do if this is my loved one, I want to make sure that I've at least explained the gospel to them, that they've heard it from me, and then I'm going to, to, to trust that, that God is a God who knows what their limitations are and, and where they're at in that, um, and is a God who's able to save in ways that uh, are not at odds with what the gospel is, but in ways that are bigger than what my ability to understand that is. Um, and so I, I appreciate your emotion in that question. I, I, I want to be sensitive in, in how I'm answering that. Um, it's, it's not, again, it's not one of those questions that there's just this blanket answer for us. It's, it's going to be contextual based on the, the situation in the person. But uh, if you're asking, are there situations where people have mental um, limitations to where they, they can't understand the gospel, I, I would have to say, yeah, I, I believe that there are. Um, I, and, and i it's the same thing with a, a, a child who passes away. We don't have clear, direct, exact, uh, you know, un, unarguable, inarguable biblical teaching on that. But we've got a lot of confidence to say that, that God is a God who saves in situations where we uh, are, are beyond the scope of our limitation on understanding that. Is that fair? Does that help? Okay. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Other questions? In the back, soundboard. You're not going fast. Cody's getting a lot of As I sit up here. Yeah. I just wondered if you could expand on what you were talking about in your sermon last week about the problem of evil. I thought it was a really good sermon. I just wondered if there were some other things we could say to people when they bring up how, you know, how can God be good when there's so much evil in the world? Yeah. Um, first, I would start with that desire for them to, to have a world in which there is no evil. Okay? Because that's really what's, what the, they're, they're voicing there. Is they're voicing 
a, a problem with the way things are. And they're saying, I don't like the way things are. And I don't want the world to be this way. I would start with that desire and, and ask them to admit to that and ask them to say, you know, even you can say, so what I hear you saying is that you long for a world in where there isn't any of this, where there isn't death, where there isn't, you know, any of the, the wickedness or evil or anything else, right? If you can get them there, then you can ask the follow-up question with them is, so how do we get there? How do we achieve that? Where do we, how do, what's, what's your game plan for that? I'm, I'm all ears. You, you tell me, how, how do we get from the world that we live in right now to a world in which there's no more pain, suffering, sorrow, or sickness? Um, you know, because it, it's not going to be socialism. It's, it's not going to be a, 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 you know, nationwide healthcare plan. It, it's, it's not going to be whatever. It, it, it's just not, it's not going to be Republican Congress, Democrat. It, it, none of that is going to do it. We've seen that proven, right, for eons. And we've seen that a democratic republic, while it's closest to what we see in scripture, um, as far as the explanation for the problem of man and, and other things, as far as dealing with a biblical worldview, it, it's, it's not the answer. Um, Nero and Rome, that wasn't the answer. Uh, you know, you go to the Middle East, that's not the answer. So it, it's not in politics, it's not in rulers, it, it's, and it's not in humans, because humans are the problem. So, so what's the solution? What, what keeps you from just total despair Nihilism, right? We talked about that at the very beginning of this. What keeps you from there? What's the solution? Listen to them hem and hon and be unable to give a, a, a solution and then say, here's, here's my solution. Here's why I do cling to the, the belief in a God who is good because this God has that future in store for all of us, okay? And then you can transition into the gospel. Again, like I said at the end of that sermon though, there is no logical argument that's going to make somebody feel okay about the existence of evil and the existence of a good God. But I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, as I was thinking about it even earlier tonight, guys, we don't realize how much of a massive, massive problem the fall was. That it, it, it changed everything, not just in that it kicked two naked people out of the garden and threw some animal skins on them. And then let's get on with the rest of the biblical story. No, the, the, the fall was, if, if, if we were there and, and saw the fall from the perspective of God, we would still be weeping today, okay? Over the loss, over the, 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 the brokenness, over the, the, the weight of the curse, over the, what that means for how people think and how people behave and how people everything. And then beyond that, when you look at God's perfect creation, and then all of a sudden in Genesis three, he says that he's cursing the ground. And then all of a sudden we're going to realize everything that that means. And in all of the, the weight of, of sin that plagues creation, such that in Romans chapter eight, Paul says that creation is groaning under the weight of the fall. If we understood the fall from the perspective of God, we would be, number one, more amazed at his common grace that this world isn't further gone than it already is. But, but we would be ultimately, we would just absolutely be shattered by that. And so when we say, you know, evil is in this world and, and, and suffering and pain is in, is in this world because of the fall, it's more than a Christian platitude to say that. It's true because the fall was the biggest game changer before the cross that this world had ever encountered. And so when we read it in the pages of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, I mean, it, 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 
everything within us should be screaming, Eve, don't reach out, don't take the fruit. Adam, act like a man and lead your wife. It should be just rending, heart-rending to us. But unfortunately, I mean, we're stuck on the flannel graphs and like the, the, the little Sunday school lessons, which are great to teach the kids the basics, but, but it, was, it was monumental. Um, and the, 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 the longer that, that God tarries in sending Christ back for his church, the, the more inventive mankind becomes in, in living out the curse of the fall. Um, and the more widespread our access to it becomes because now it's on our, our phones and our tablets and the televisions and everything else. And it's, it's in our face everywhere we turn. It's, it's unavoidable. Uh, it, but the, the, the fall was just, we just need to have such a, a, a bigger understanding of what a monumental catastrophe that was. Another question I thought I saw. Oh, a couple more. We're, we're interested about the fall. All right. You do, and then we'll come over and thank you. What you were just saying. <laughs> so a lot of people I've seen or influencers have rejected Bible. I'm not saying rejected Bible, but they say it's too exclusive, so I don't want to follow it. Right. So how do you deal with or talk to them about it in yeah. a personal way? Yeah. Uh, the Bible's too exclusive. You're right. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it, it is. That's that's just it. But everybody is. And that gets back to that idea of truth, right? They're, they're looking for something that's more inclusive with truth. They're looking for something that's going to allow me, hey, you know what? This is my truth. I'm going to I'm gonna live my truth. Um, you live yours, and we'll all coexist like that crazy bumper sticker with all the different symbols on it. And, and then, you know, when when everything ends, we'll all be dust to dust, or it'll all pan out, or God's love wins, and everybody's going to get to heaven just in a different path. It, it, but, but I think that the thing would be is I would go after that with them, is that idea of, of truth. Uh, because the reason why we cling to the Bible is because we believe that this is the ultimate source of truth. And this ultimate source of truth is, by very definition, going to be limited. It's going to be restrictive. It's going to be exclusive. And so it's a question of what is their ultimate source of truth? Because whatever their ultimate source of truth is, even if they're postmodern and saying there's, uh, you know, all truth is subjective, well, there's their ultimate so source of truth. It's, it's, a, it's a narrowly defined concept of truth. Um, yeah, we, we can't apologize for the Bible being exclusive. We can't apologize for the gospel being exclusive. It's, it's core to the gospel. That's what is so offensive to people is, wait a minute, you're telling me I've got a problem and I only have one? Solution, and I, and I have to, and I can't even claim credit for that. That grates against everything that this world throws at us. So, you know, I wouldn't. It, it's different than the homosexuality thing up here, but you know, again, we can't we can't camp out there and major on it for too long because even if I convince somebody to be okay with the exclusivity of the Bible, I've still got to get back to the gospel. So, if it if it's somebody who's an unbeliever, which is what my guess would be if they're saying that the Bible is is not the ultimate standard, then I would say that, that the, the real thing is, again, get off that landmine and, and get to the, the rescue mission for that person as, as quickly as you, you can in that context. Is that fair? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's this guy who comes into my salon and like he sells us blow dryers and like all that stuff. Uh -huh. But when he comes in, he's literally like crazy. Like he comes in and he's like, 
in the name of Jesus. And like, I had like this vision about you last night. Yeah. Oh, and like God told me this and God told me that. And it freaks my coworkers out. And right. It freaks me out too. Cause yeah. like, I don't know what to say. It freaks me out. And it's kind of like, yeah. And like, it's kind of like, like he thinks he's being like a good rep- representation of Christ, but uh-huh. it's not. So right. like after that, like I just go quiet cause I don't know how to say anything after that. Cause everybody gets so freaked out and then they right. think of Christianity poorly. So like, how do I go about yeah. with being a light after like he comes in right. on occasion? So. I think it's totally legit and fair for you to look at your coworkers and be like, guys, that, that weirds me out too. Okay. I think it's, it's fair. Um, you know, I, I, I again, that... <sighs> careful PJ. Um, yeah, it, it's the charismatic camp versus the, the non-charismatic camp, okay? And there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are absolutely headed for heaven that are righteous believers that are charismatic, okay? I'm, I'm not going to deny that. There are those that are in the charismatic camp as well that are not believers. Um, there's a lot of abuse on the charismatic side of things as well. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about that because that's my guess. If I, I sat down with this guy, sells hair dryers, my guess is he would say, yeah, I'm, I'm in the charismatic camp. So that's why I'm addressing that. If this guy was coming in, you know, fire and brimstone with the Bible, I'd talk about the Baptist. But um, he's not. He's coming in with hair dryers in the name of Jesus. Um, <laughs> it it, it, it kind of gets back to that, that side on the Mormonism thing where it, it can be so close to the truth and use so many similar things and, and similar words. And I'm not painting with a broad brush on all charismatics, so please hear me say that. But I'm saying that, that there are, are some of those things where they run wild with that stuff, and it's, it's really unbiblical, okay? Um, if a guy's saying, hey, I've, I've got a prophecy over you, that guy's biblically putting his life on the line. Because if that doesn't come true, the Bible's going to say, okay, it's time for you, us to drag you outside and stone you to death. Um, so, you know, all that to say, how do you approach your coworkers? Um, it, it, that soft entrance may be something politely to say, you know what, guys, I don't know what you think about this guy that comes in, but it's pretty strange, right? That's totally fair to say. It is strange. Um, and then that might be an open door for you to say, I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian and I, I go to a church and my church, we, we don't sell hair dryers and scream about in the name of Jesus and prophesy over people at my church. Um, I hope not. If any of you guys are, let's talk afterwards. But, um, I think it's fair to, to say that, and maybe that even creates a great opportunity for them to start asking you some questions. Like, oh, well, if that's not what every Christian's like, tell me a little bit more about what you've experienced, what, what church is like for you. Um, and then you've got, that, you've got their ear on that. But that's a way without you having to, to get into the, the distractions and the nuts and bolts of everything that's wrong with that and, and still be able to engage them and, and talk with them and, and say that this is don't view all of Christianity through hairdryer guy, but there's, there's other versions of, of Christianity. There's good versions of Christianity, biblical versions of Christianity out there that are worth it. And, and I've, that's what I practice. That's what I believe in. That's what I hold on to. Does that make sense? Okay. Is that helpful? Okay. Awesome. Hairdryers hair, hair in the name of Jesus and prophecies. Follow up to that. Follow up to that. Um, I have a friend who came to Compass. She okay. was, we met at Compass, and now she is quite charismatic. Yep. And she always quotes to me. 
Um, 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue mm. love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophecy. Mm -hmm. And she tells me what the words I'm giving you are true and yeah. it's biblical. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> no. Um, in that context, we have to ask her what, what she's referring to, what she's talking about by the word prophecy. Um, Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For one who no one understands him, but he utters mysteries uh, in the spirit. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament as it's manifested in the church is different from the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament when you had Old Testament prophets visited by God who were sent by God with messages to the people. The New Testament prophets really honestly became, in a lot of ways, that those that taught the word of God, that came with the word of God to use God's word, to use the truth of scriptures for, as it says there in verse 3, uh, the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of others. And so to, to prophesy in that context is not to say, I have a revelation from God, thus says the Lord over your life, but it's to bring God's word to bear in your life again for those purposes. And so if you can get your friend, quote verse one to me, that's great, but let's move two verses later and look at what, what is prophecy. Prophecy is the, the upbuilding, encouraging, and consolation of other believers. And in the New Testament context, again, that was done with scripture to come alongside one another and encourage one another with the word of God and, and, and for the upbuilding in that sense. Um, yeah, that one's, that one's a tricky one, huh? Well, we've had a lot of discussion. Yeah, I'm sure. She's a good theologian, but she's lost her way and it's tough because she makes really good arguments. Right. Right. And, and again, let me come back to this, this idea of cessationism versus continuationism, which cessationism says the sign gifts, right, has, have ceased. That's why it's called cessationism. Uh, not sensationism, but cessationism. Continuationism says that, that they continue today, that people still speak in tongues. People still have prophetic word from the Lord. I think that's where we're dangerous because if somebody's claiming to have a prophetic word from the Lord that's not in the pages of the, the, the scripture, we need to get out our pen and paper because we're writing down scripture at that point. We're writing down God's word. We, we believe that, that God's word closed with the, the, the last of the New Testament, okay? So that's where, yeah, we've got a question about, man, you're in real dangerous territory here. If somebody is just a continuationist, though, it doesn't mean that they're not a believer, okay? Um, and if you're a continuationist, I would hope you would say, well, if somebody's a cessationist, it doesn't mean that they're not a believer. Um, there are, are, are brilliant theologians that are continuationists. Um, I disagree with them. I, I don't think they're, they're right. But I, I would still say that undoubtedly they're a brother in Christ or, or whatnot in that context. But if continuationism is left unchecked and left to run wild, then, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's dangerous in that sense. Other questions? I got a question. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you've proclaimed the gospel winsomely to your best friend forever, but they just flat out. Is this a prophecy me. over me? No, no, no. Okay. No, 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 I'm no. just making sure. Okay. Um, and then, but, but obviously since you guys are best friends forever, it's not, not you, Pastor PJ, but. What's, what's my best friend's name? Um, you, no, I'm just kidding. You don't okay. have to give me the name. <laughs> um, so I, I have to be in a situation. I, I have classes with people okay. who like, I've, I've talked to the gospel too, but they're like, uh, sorry, no. Yeah. Um, do I just like flat out avoid them like the plague or mm. do I just like still try to keep yeah. at it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. 
No, um, you don't flat out avoid them like the plague. There, there's, you, you look for every opportunity to continue to, to bring the gospel back to the forefront. And hopefully you've done a good, good job of, of explaining the, the nuts and bolts of the, the gospel to them so that you don't have to go back to ground zero with them every single time. But you can go back to the gospel when you see those opportunities. And so, uh, again, pray. Pray for those opportunities. Pray that you would be thinking as you're talking with them, how can I get to the cross with every single time in this? I mean, Spurgeon told pastors that when they're preaching, you make a beeline for the cross. Get, get into your text and make a beeline for the cross. Uh, with, with you guys, with your conversations with unbelievers, uh, make a beeline for the cross. Look for those opportunities to get to the gospel, to get to the cross every single opportunity that you have. And so with somebody who is a, a friend, especially somebody who's a friend, um, if they initially put their arms out to the gospel and say no, um, look for other ways to, to remind them of it. But if they finally say, you know what, just, just stop, then respect that and stop and, and pray that, that their heart will be softened, that somebody else will reach them, that those seeds that are planted would, would grow, would be watered and would grow and come to fruition. But, you know, yeah, you, you do at some point get to the place where you can, if they say stop, then you stop. Um, there's, a, there's another place that we can come to that is, is harder to decipher. And that's where Jesus talks about the concept of casting pearls before the swine. Um, and that one's hard, but if, if you've been pursuing somebody and pursuing them and pursuing them, pursuing them for years and years and years, and, and they're, they're just hard and cold and, and stone-faced, then I, I think your, your evangelistic efforts are best at that point spent in, in other arenas. Not that you stop praying for them, or if they were to come to you and say, hey, can you go back over that gospel thing with me one more time? You'd, absolutely, 100%. But your, your intentionality, you're redirecting your efforts at that point. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, right. So my question is about uh, kind of changes the direction a little bit more about our personal lives. Um, okay. So like I was just searching for a job and I'm thinking to my, I'm praying, I got to make this much money. I got to be this successful. I got to be able to, you know, have a truck and have a bed and have a home and all these things. Trucks are important. They are. Um, I, and that comes from a guy who drives a Corolla. So, man, I, I, I hear you. Uh I kind of thought to myself, like, man, like, what if, like, Paul or Jesus saw me right now? And they're yeah. like, this is what you're concerned about? So yeah. Really, in our lives, especially in Southern California, where yeah. success is defined by, like, how many Maseratis mm-hmm. are in your, you know, your driveway, how do we reconcile that with, our, you know, our, our desire to, to serve the Lord and kind of give up everything for him? Right. Great question. Um, Again, one that there's not a, a blanket answer to, but some principles that we can draw from Scripture. Um, first, if Maseratis are the, the standard, I fail horribly. Um, and uh, But hey, I've got a Corolla, which uh, in some places that would be a Maserati, so I guess I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, it, yeah, I, I, those are good thoughts to have, and I think we need more of those thoughts. I think we need to entertain more of those ideas like, okay, man, if, if Christ came back and, and looked at what my problems are. I mean, we all know the first world problem memes that float around out there and we always joke about them. Uh, but let's even talk about second world problems or, or third world problems. Like we, we need to be ready at a pat, like Pastor Mike is always talking about, to give everything up at any point and at any time to do whatever God wants us to do, right? In the meantime, what do we do with, with our pursuits? Uh, it's it's this, this hard balance. Paul says in Colossians 3, um, 16 is the one that, that we're familiar with. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms. And uh, I already read that. Verse 17, though, okay? And whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever your pursuit is, as long as you are pursuing that in the integrity of your heart, and that's the caveat there, with the intentionality that I'm pursuing this honestly in the name of of Christ, for his glory, for his honor, then do it. Is it wrong? Is it unbiblical? Is it ungodly to be successful, to be wealthy, and to be a believer? No, not at all, right? I mean, consider Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the, 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 uh, the, the followers of Christ, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ to be taken down from the cross. He's described as a wealthy man. Isaiah 53, he's prophesied. He will be buried by a, a wealthy man with a wealthy man in his death. That's Joseph of Arimathea. He's laid in his tomb. God's using him in a, in a pretty monumental way there. Consider Lydia from the book of Acts, right? She was a purveyor of purple goods. She's doing well for herself, right? And then she eventually is saved. And it doesn't say that she was all of a sudden done doing what she had done before or gone back to her house and put the, the Keller Williams realty sign up in front of, of her house and sold everything she had and, and abandoned everything. Now, her, her priorities changed. She became part of the, the early church there, so she was given to the church more. She was engaging with the church. She was caring for people. She was taking care of, of needs. But there's, there's not to, to be a holy Christian does not mean that we live in, in abject need, okay? Um, some do, and some are, are willing to say, look, I feel called by the, the Lord to give up everything I have and go. There's a guy named Shannon Hurley who's a, a missionary in Uganda. Has a, SOS is, is the ministry there. Um, and he's killing it right now for, for God in Uganda. And he's training up pastors through this organization. They're going out and planning people. Well, Shannon Hurley worked for a marketing company before he left for the mission field. And Shannon Hurley invented the Aflac duck. Okay. Like that was his brainchild. He created the Aflac duck, was doing great for himself, making money hand over fist, obviously on the licensing of that and everything else. And eventually he got to the point where he looked at his wife and he said, honey, I think we need to let go of all this and hit the mission field. And it, it was a, a process for them to, to come to that point to say, yeah, let's, let's do this. But they got there and they said, yeah, this is what we're called to do. They sold everything and used everything that that was their earthly wealth at that point to move to Uganda to start this ministry that's now going strong, that's now training pastors and going out and planting churches. That's some people's call, right? But on the other hand, eventually all that money that he had that he sold that then they went out to the mission field and they they started this ministry and started planting churches, that's going to run out at some point, right? And so at at that stage, he needs other people that are going to be able to, to support him. Other believers, other Christians that believe in what he's doing that are going to be able to, to write the big check to be able to help him do what he's doing and, and support him. Um, a mentor of mine back in, in seminary described it as the missionary is the one that's rappelling over the, the, the edge of the cliff, right? He needs somebody holding the rope, right? So, so in, in that sense, and, and this guy was a guy that was crazy successful as well and wealthy, but the, one of the humblest, most genuine men that I've known, I've, I've learned a ton from him. He lived in a nice house, but man, he gave and gave and gave and gave and gave until it hurt and was doing amazing things for the Lord. So where you're at right now, it's, it's, it's really coming back to that question of, okay, God, what's your call in my life right now? If your call in my life is to go into the, the business world and be a Christian businessman, great. I'm going to do that. And Colossians 317, I'm going to do everything I do in the name of Christ. So I'm going to go out there and, and if, if you open doors for me to be successful, in this life, then, then keep me humble and keep me giving back to you. Keep me inv- reinvesting it back into your, what you're doing in your kingdom, in your work, right? 
Um, if Paul saw your, your heart was there, he'd pat you on the back and say, go harder. Go for it. Excel still more in that. But if the heart is, I want to be comfortable, and so I want the, the F-350 with the dualies and, and everything else, and I, I, I want that and, that, and that's why I'm going after this, is because I've got this idol of comfort in my heart, or if I've got this idol of materialism or this idol of, of wealth in my heart, then, yeah, there's, there's a problem there, right? So that's why I say it's, it's not a blanket statement that you can make across the board to say this is bad, this is, is good. Um, it, it comes down to uh, what's, what's your conviction of what God's doing in your life right now, and I would encourage you also to have other relationships with, with godly brothers that you can share that with and get their perspective as well so that you're not making that decision in a silo, but you've got guys that know you, um, and are able to say to you, yeah, Ray, I, I see this. I see this giftedness in your life. I see what you're, you're driving at here. This, <laughs> this is needed. You need to, to focus on that. Go for it. Do it. Or to be able to come alongside you and say, you know what, Ray, I, have you thought about this? Have you thought about how you're coming across this way? Or maybe this isn't exactly you know, what you need to be doing right now. And give ear to, to them as well. Does that help? Very much, yeah. Cool. Other questions? This is awesome. You guys are actually asking questions, which is good. I was terrified that I was going to stand up here with crickets tonight. Alex Martin, how many questions this time? <laughs> Dude, he's raising his hand without a question even loaded. You just got him, you got him ready to go. So uh, I work at this uh, place called the Federal Building, and of course it's a Is that the pyramid? <laughs> yeah, it's the ziggurat. It's a big okay. pyramid. Yeah, I drove by that place yeah. the other day. Creeps me out. <laughs> Keep going. So uh, in that area, it's just like it's really hard for me to go out there because there's a lot of people that curse, and it's just sure. it's really – and even my manager, uh, there was one time she said, she said the uh, J-E-S-U-S word, and I'm like – Sunday school word, right? Okay. you got to yep. be kidding me. Uh-huh. Seriously, stop. So I asked her politely, and she just went like to not – say that word anymore but she just went completely off the scale like right. saying you know got like you know offended or whatever right so as a christian in yeah. a in the bible and how do you go forth to tell them hey you know i believe in a god that tells me not to say that kind of stuff and i don't like hearing that kind of stuff around me how do i you know get around the you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, John 17, right? John 17 is uh, Jesus' final prayer for his uh, disciples that we have recorded at least before he uh, died on the cross. Um, Verse 12 of John 17, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has, what's that next word? Hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in 
truth. So a couple things we learn in this passage. Number one, Jesus understands the hostility of the world in which you and I live in. He understood the hostility of the world in which he was sending the disciples out to, to the extent that he was praying for them that they would be protected in, from that, okay? So that's pretty monumental, okay? If, if we've got our Savior, our Lord and Savior, praying for us as we go out into the world because the world hates us, and that's the second thing there is Jesus doesn't pull punches. He doesn't say, yeah, the world's going to tolerate you. No, he says the world hates you. In fact, earlier he's saying, look, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me, your master, they're going to hate you, my follower, right? And so in that sense, the, the, the work environment that you work in is, is unfortunately not abnormal uh, by today's culture and society and standards. I mean, when we have politicians now throwing the F word into their, their speeches, I mean, that's, it's, it's absurd. It's mind-boggling. So I think it's okay to do what you did and, and to, to speak up and to say, hey, you know what, that, that offends me. And if you wouldn't mind, I would really appreciate if around me you wouldn't speak that way. That's totally fine and reasonable and, and, a, and a good thing to do. And a, a, a normal, sane person should respect that, whether they're a Christian or not. But the fact that your manager didn't respect that is also not surprising because of John 17. Because we live in a world that hates Christ and that hates everything that Jesus stands for. And so they're going to look at you as, as raw meat, and they're going to go after you even harder on that. So unfortunately, guys, that's, that's the thing. You guys are, and a lot of you already have, transitioned out of this realm where you're at home with mom and dad in high school and junior high and everything else. And, and not all of you were even at that point, but a lot of you were, for the most part, sheltered from you know, the, the vile language and, and everything else. But now you're, you're matriculating out of that environment into the, the world of adulthood and you're coming face to face with the world that does hate you and that does hate your savior. Um, and that's hard. And let me just encourage you not to grow, uh, you know, discouraged by that, but to grow hopeful for eternity uh, in the face of that, to grow hopeful for um, the, the time when all that is, is gone. But yeah, I think you did the, the right thing by saying, hey, you know what, this is offensive to me. Would you would you stop uh, what she does after that? I mean, you, you've, you've done what you can do. Um, yeah. I wouldn't go back with a megaphone at her or anything else like that. You probably wouldn't be working at the ziggurat for much longer, but, but yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's, it's, can you continue to work in that context? Yes. Um, if you have the ability to walk around with AirPods in or whatever and, and put something good in your, in your mind as you're walking around, do that right. So that you can drown out some of it where you would, I would say it's time to, to get out is if you're being asked to sin, if you're being asked to compromise. And that's when I would say you need to get out. But yeah. Yeah, CJ. And then. So my best friend since the fifth grade, uh, she got married probably six years ago now. Um, she her husband was really emotionally abusive toward her and it was a really bad situation for like a year, almost two years. And, um, it got to the point where he was telling her like, I don't want to be married to you anymore, but he never went through with like executing the divorce. Yeah. And, um, I'm pretty confident that my, my best friend is a saved person. Mm -hmm. Um, we know now that her now ex-husband is not, Mm um, but she's the one who, went through with filing for divorce. Yeah. And I just, 
I don't know. Like, I'm I'm not convinced that she's like not in a state of sin, sin right. right now. Um, and she's making some really poor choices. Yeah. Um, you know, she's still, she's not legally divorced yet. The paperwork hasn't been finalized, you know, but regardless of that, right. it's like before God, right? you know, I, I'm not sure how to continue my relationship with her. Right. You know, when yeah. I'm confused about her spiritual state. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. This is, uh, this is unfortunately not all that uncommon. Uh, do a lot of counseling, a lot of marriage counseling. Here's the thing. We, we often talk about God hates divorce except for, and we'll throw out two, maybe sometimes, depending on the situation, three situations. Uh, the first situation that's, that's black and white, the scripture talks about directly is adultery. If adultery has taken place, then the, 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 the most uh, tangible element of the marriage covenant has been broken, and God says because of the, but even there, because of the hardness of your heart, um, yes, you can divorce in that context. So even when adultery has taken place, the, f- the first response is, are you willing to reconcile? Um, and there's amazing testimonies of couples who have reconciled even with, with horrid adultery, and God has done amazing things through their, their marriage. But the second context, we would say, is abuse. Um, it's, it's interesting that that's not spoken to in, in Scripture. That's one that we've put in there, and, and uh, we've put in there because... Yes, if somebody's life is in danger, you know, you don't want them to remain in that situation. And there are times in which we would counsel somebody for the sake of your life, to save your life, get out of that marriage. You need to go into almost like a witness protection kind of situation for the sake of you, your children, whatever it is. Yes, get out of that, that situation. Even in that context, when we would say that, uh, we would not counsel that person to get remarried. Um, because the Bible is silent on that situation. So in in that context, I'm speaking directly to physical abuse. Um, Not that verbal abuse doesn't happen and isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. And there are times and situations where even separation may be the the best thing to take place to, to really work on both parties involved in that. But I, I, all that to say, I think I, I would agree with you from a pastoral standpoint. I don't think it was, and I, I don't know all the context, but from what you've told me, I wouldn't have counseled for divorce in that situation. And I certainly wouldn't counsel for her to be pursuing any other relationships now that she has divorced him. Um, yeah. How can you uh, best be served in, in, in that it may be one of the last conversations that you have with her, but if you feel like you need to voice that to her, I think that, that you would be on solid footing biblically to do that. Um, and just be ready to say, you know what, this may be my last conversation that I have with her. Um, you certainly don't want to be in a situation where she interprets your, even your silence as support or condoning what she's doing. Um, but that's, that is hard. That's really hard. Here's the reality, guys, and this is good for all of you to hear. Some of you on the doorstep of marriage. Marriage is not about us. It's not. It's given to us by God as an amazing and phenomenal gift. And I love my wife to death. I love her. And I would do anything for her. I would die for her in an instant. 
right? But at its core, marriage is about our obedience to God, our love for God, our obeying God in a role that's different than the role that you have when you're a single person. Ephesians 5, right? Paul starts out, wives, submit to your husbands. What are the next words there? Yeah, as to the Lord, right? Paul's saying, submit to your husband's wives, not for their good, not because they're a great person, not because they're awesome, not because they hang the moon, the sun, and the stars, but submit to them because in doing that, you are obeying me, is what Paul is saying there. And so he's, he's throwing that out there, and you might say, well, wow, that sounds harsh, but at the same time, that's a grace of God because there are bad marriages, like the one that that CJ's talking about here that are out there, wherein a wife can still find satisfaction and comfort in following her husband. As long as her husband is not asking her to sin or leading her to sin, she can still submit to his leadership, even if he is the biggest jerk on the face of the earth, because she can have contentment that she is obeying God in that and storing up eternal rewards for herself in how she submits to her husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Your love for your wife, men, when you grow up and, and, and get married, is not even primarily about somebody looking at you and going, well, look at him. He's a hallmark husband. That's fantastic. No, it's about people looking at you and seeing Christ in the way that you pursue your wife and in the way that you love your wife. Marriage is, is, there are so many things about marriage that are phenomenal, that are such good blessings when it is a good and godly and healthy marriage. But there are so many marriages that are not good and godly and healthy. And one of the hardest things I have to tell people in the counseling office is, look, your marriage is not about you. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your contentment and your satisfaction. It's about your relationship with God and it's another extension for you in your role as husband or wife to glorify God, even when it's hard. And so in, in that context, yeah, it's, your heart goes out to her if, if, you know, if, if he was just a, an absolute jerk to her, but at the same time, she's coming into before the Lord and, and, and him primarily, not even her husband primarily, that she's in. Um, in that context. Yeah. Other questions? We'd, let's go back to Mike, and then we'll come down back to this mic. You've already asked a question, Mike. So this mic is going to ask a question. And then you can ask him. Uh, you've already got a mic, Mike. So give that a mic a mic, and then this mic, Mike, can Mike ask. All right, got it. Um, I have maybe two questions. For first question. <laughs> <laughs> the first question involves... <laughs> First question involves how we, like, conduct ourselves in evangelism. So I've, like... Like this. Yes. Um, yes. So I've watched, like, some, like, apologist videos about evangelism. And I've come across one apologist named Cy Ten. I don't know if you've heard of him. Cy Ten? Yeah, Brogan Kate. Kevin has. And, like... Okay. Um, he's, like, really intense about it. And, like, yeah. he, like... With a name like Cy Ten, you can't yeah. not be intense. <laughs> He's, like, really absolutist about it. Like, okay. he knows he has the truth, which we do. Yeah. But, like, um, there will be other people I watch, like Pastor Jeff Durbin, who's another apologist, who says that I could be wrong. And Saiten mm -hmm. will make the point that, like, one day you're saying on church, like, you're worshiping, oh, you're the only God, I believe in you. Right. And you're, you're there, you're true. Right. But then the next day you're saying, well, I could be wrong. Right. Like, he makes a point that you're not believing in the same God. Like, right. And, but how do you not come across as like really like dogmatic to people when you're saying, no, I have the truth, nothing but the truth? Because here's the deal. If you're drowning, right, and you're out there and, and I'm holding a life ring, 
And I know for certain, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this life ring saves your life if I throw it to you. And I call out to you, like, hey, get ready for this life ring. You should really grab it because it's going to save your life. That's a loving thing for me to do for you, right? Yeah. Versus if I say, hey, I could be wrong. I, I'm going to look for a brick. I'll be right back. I'm going to throw both of these to you. You, you choose. Uh, you're going down anyways. The brick's going to sink. Just try to grab it on your way down. Maybe. Who knows, right? That's not loving at all. Right? So, so to, to apologize, again, this goes back to the exclusivity of the Bible question back here. To apologize that we have the truth is not a loving thing to do. Right? It's, it, Charles Spurgeon, he said, you know, some people want to live within earshot of a church bell. He said, I want to run a, a rescue mission within a, a mile of the gates of hell. Right? It, it's, it's that mentality. It's, man, I want, to, I want to let everybody that I know know that we do have the truth. That's Romans 10, 14, and 15. Go and, and proclaim that the, the, the truth, save, give the saving message. To, to give the saving message, but then to, to couch it in a sense of false humility, which is really what it is, to say, well, I, I could be wrong, so, man, but just chew on this for a while. Go explore Buddha. Go explore whatever. Check them out. Because, you know, I could be wrong. No, you, you, you're, you're right or you're not right. But if, if, if you believe what... This book says, if you believe John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, then you, you got to own that in evangelism. And so it's not arrogant to say, this is the truth, any more than it is for somebody on the deck of a boat with somebody drowning to say, this is going to save your life. Right? Yeah. No, I agree with you, because I just wouldn't know if there's, like, how to way to not come across as that. Because and that's where it comes down to, to speaking the truth in love, which was this question that Caitlin asked about, you know, how, when do we share the gospel? How, uh, developing a relationship versus not developing a relationship. I, again, Paul's words to Titus that we need to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. We need to make it look beautiful to people. So there's a way to, to, to be compassionate and loving to somebody and yet not bend on the fact that this is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. If you're saying how... It's different in every context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it depends upon the person that you're engaging with. Yeah. Did you, you had another question or no? I mean, okay. Um, so <laughs> this is more for like hardcore like internet atheist skeptics, right? So there's like an objection that Christianity... I internet? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is close around the internet. Can I just tell you one thing? Are you talking about like getting in debates with them? No, I'm just saying I see Okay, good, because I was going to say stop it. <laughs> no, they're pointless, yes. Yeah. But... Like, I see the objection that, and, but, I, but also, like, other atheists that are vocal, like Dawkins right. and David Silverman, right. make this objection that Christianity is just uh, newer versions of other religions that have come before, like Atonism or Zoroastrianism, where there will be, like, some similarities they'll see with it. Yeah. Like, Zoroastrianism, they have their own version of God. There's a creation epic, there's a flood story. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of similarities, but, like, I know, like, the manuscript evidence doesn't, like, line up. Like, our manuscripts of the Bible is a lot older than right. theirs is. But right. I don't know if there's, like, any more to, like, say to that. No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I just, no. Yeah, I know that's, it's, like, a really big objection. Yeah, that, yeah, and, and that's, yeah, it's another landmine. It's another distraction. It's, it's come back and let's talk about the reality. Let's talk about what we need to deal with right now, which is what you're going to do with Jesus Christ and the gospel. We can talk about Zoroastrianism and the 
Epic of Gil Gilgamesh and all that stuff later. Okay. But right now let's, let's deal with what we need to deal with, which is, I, I want to talk to you about Jesus and what, what are you going to do with that? Right? So don't, again, don't get distracted by the landmine. Keep your eyes focused on the person that needs to be rescued. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not more profound on that, but yeah. Mike, Mike. So I was wondering on the grounds of like people think the whole idea of interfaith and coexist and how obviously it doesn't work when you actually put it together. But if I was to dialogue with someone about that who like emailed me about the club at Saddleback and was like, hey, I want to work together, but they're Islamic. Right. How do I dialogue with them and somehow get to the cross? I know at some point there's going to be like kind of a hostile line drawn in the sand. Yeah. Like what would be your way of trying to navigate past that landmine, obviously, right. to get to the cross when there's a massive line in the sand? Right. Um, yeah, so uh, the, that gentleman came up to talk to me at Saddleback two times ago, right? Um, older guy, Muslim, wanted to talk to me about what we were doing. He's part of the mosque here in Aliso Viejo. He said, hey, we do a lot of outreach uh, and things like that, and we try to really understand other other religions and stuff, and, and we really want to just make sure that the, the whole coexist mantra. I said, okay, well, I said, that's interesting. And, and I said, you know, we're, as, as Christians, there's some similarities here between some parts of Christianity and, and Islam. I mean, the first parts of the Bible until you get to Jacob and Esau, and then they choose the wrong brother and go haywire. And, and that got him talking. He was like, oh, yeah, no, 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 we've got so many similarities. And, and he wanted to talk about those things. And I said, okay, yeah, but when we come to Jacob and Esau, um, Isaac and Ishmael, thank you, sorry, I, I heard the grumblings. Um, Isaac and Ishmael, that's the dividing line. When we come to Isaac and Ishmael, as believers, we believe what the Bible teaches us, which is that Isaac was the one that was bound and laid upon the altar to be sacrificed by Abraham, and God stopped Abraham. The, the Islamic faith teaches that, no, it was Ishmael, that Ishmael was the son of promise, and then so forth and so on. And, and to him, it, it was like, well, that's no big deal. We, we just have different brothers that were up on the altar, and so, you know, it's, it's fine. But it's not fine. And so where, where I tried to get with him, though, is I said, and I used the question that we had there, but you... We don't have, you don't have to have access to a question. You could say, so no matter what the religion is that you follow, typically the afterlife is a pretty big deal. So what is, what does your faith teach about the afterlife? Um, you know, a question like that is a doorway to get them to begin to define their parameters. And all of a sudden now we're, we're no longer coexisting. And that's what I did with that guy. And I said, so, um, I said, you guys believe in Jesus too, don't you? And maybe that's another question you can ask is, what, what about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, you believe he's a prophet? He goes, well, no, we believe that he was the, the, the greatest prophet. He is, even has a title in the Quran. I said, great, we believe that he was the son of God. He said, yes, we believe that's blasphemy. And I said, so you think that I'm going to hell? Oh, no, 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 no. I would never say that you're going to hell. But you just told me that I've committed blasphemy, so you think I'm going to go to hell. No, I can't make that decision. That's up to God. Okay, so a blasphemer is okay in your book? Well... So you're, all of a sudden they're going to be tripping over themselves once you get into these areas where they have to define themselves if they're a good fill-in-the-blank non-Christian, okay? Um, so ask the questions in a, in a winsome way, in a non-threatening way. Uh, I mean, he, he was worried about me being offended. He was like, you're a blasphemer. I mean, I don't mean to offend you. I was like, I don't care if you offend me. That's, right? You're wrong. I, whatever. Fine. I'm a blasphemer. You can think I'm a blasphemer all day long. I'd rather you tell me I'm a blasphemer or going to hell because then you'll have some conviction rather than just saying, well, I can't make that call. Um, man, if you lifted some of the statements I've made from this Q&A and just cut them and took them out of context, that'd be so bad for me. Um, 
So yeah, I, I, ask, ask those questions in a non-threatening, non-aggressive way. Back to your, your question, Mike, the, the, the Mike and Mike's working together here. You, you know, ask them in a winsome way, but, but get to the questions that you're going to begin to pull out what their dividing and defining parameters are there. Um, for that, that club, I would say, you know what? Our mission on campus at Saddleback is to make disciples of Christ through sharing the, go the biblical gospel. If you can come on board with us on that, we'd love to work with you. But uh, we're going to need to take you through partners first. <laughs> See what they say. My guess is they'll say, we're going to talk to the Mormons. So, questions? Hey, how's Friendsgiving? It was really fun. The host and hostess of Friendsgiving right here, folks. Give it up. Uh, if this question was already asked, I can ask you later. But okay. When you are evangelizing um, with someone who has lost a lot of family of their life that weren't Christians, <coughs> and they clearly understand what our faith means, right. so we're essentially saying that their loved ones are in hell, right. and, they, and they call you out on that, what would your loving response be? What would your, you know, you're sensitive to that, right? Because they call you out on that. They, in other words, there's... If you're saying, so you're essentially telling me that my mom's in hell. Right. Because she wasn't a follower of Christ. Right. How, like, how do you... You know, what would you say? Again, uh, a landmine in the, the field of evangelism is that we're trying to navigate to get to the person that needs rescuing, right, is, is that, that very subject. And that's one to be compassionate with and to be sensitive with. But it's really to say, you know what, I, the person that I care about right now in this moment is you. And the fact that, you know what, if this is true, I, I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to make a decision on what you're going to do with Jesus. And if, as, as I've laid things out, if you see the validity to this, if, if your conscience is pricked, if your spirit is pricked to, to accept this and to believe this, I want to urge you and implore you, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, that, that you should believe this. You know, we can, we can talk more, you know, later on about these, these other issues and these other things. You know, I don't, and, and you can say this in the integrity of your heart. You can say, I don't know the heart of, of any person where they stood with Christ unless you, unless you know somehow. Like they went out waving Nazi flags and screaming bad things about Jesus. No, you, we don't know. And so you can say that to them to kind of say, look, I, I'm not going to tell you that your loved ones are in, are in hell. Um, I, I, I don't know that. I, I, I don't know where they stood with, with the Lord. And, and you don't know where they stood with the Lord, to be honest with you. But I care about where you stand with the Lord. And so I'd like to get back to talking to you about what your thoughts are about these things. Is that fair? Okay. Paul, me, uh, Mike, me, Paul. Yeah. Uh, what would you What would you say if you're talking to someone and and they they're an unbeliever and they have a problem and they're going, yeah, I have this problem, and you say, well, you know, the solution is Christ, and you try and share the gospel with them. Yeah. And they say. Who are you to share the truth with me? You know, you're a sinner just as much as I am. How you're not as smart or whatever the issue would right. be. Why do you have access to, to tell me tell me that? Right. Yeah. It, it, it's the old hypocrite thing. Our, the church is a bunch of hypocrites. Yes, we are. But we're saved hypocrites. Um, yeah, back, back to the... The analogy, and I think Pastor Mike gives this analogy in uh, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife of the, um, the lifeboat. And that is, you know, the boat's going down, 
you know where the lifeboat is. Um, so you're running around the deck telling everybody, get to the lifeboat, get to the lifeboat, get to the lifeboat, get to the lifeboat, follow me. I know where the lifeboat is. Follow me. You're not better than any of them, and you're just as much in need of that lifeboat as they are because that whole boat is going down, and you're going down with it. But you happen to know where the lifeboat is, and you want to bring as many people as you possibly can to get to the lifeboat. It doesn't make you better than them, but you would be a cruel and heartless and wicked person to, to come back to that idea of, of it's, it's unloving to, to withhold the truth from somebody, to let people go just by saying, well, I, I don't want you to think I'm arrogant because I'm telling you where the lifeboat is. No, you, you, you're going to go around. You're going to sound the alarm. You're going to say, get to the boats, get to the boats, get to the boats, get to the boats. Follow me. They're over here. And that's what we're doing with the gospel. So if somebody says, who are you? It's like, I, I, I'm telling you this because I love you, because I care about you, because I am feeling a heart of compassion towards you. And I'm not trying to tell you I'm better than you. I need this just as much as you do. But the, the, the only thing is, is that God has, has graciously shown me where the lifeboat is. And now I'm, I'm praying that he's going to do that with you too. It's the same thing that I learned. I, I'm, this, I'm, there's no secret knowledge. There's no elite spiritual level. There's no Gnostic level of Christianity here. This is it. The nuts and bolts. Come and get, in, and get on board. Get in the lifeboat with us. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, I think that analogy is, is better explained in... Uh, Pastor Mike's new book, 10 Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. Other questions? By the way, leaders, we're going to not do small groups tonight because <laughs> if you're looking at your watch going, he's going so long, we're going to be here until 10 o'clock, this is horrible. We're just going to pass because this has gone on. So I apologize for that. But. Um, Lord.ren, Instagram, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, Are you going to try to sell me something? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Yeah. But yeah. Sorry. What's Not your question? Right I'll stop being a jerk. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, what do you think your view is on when non-Christians pray? Yeah. Do you think that God answers prayers of people who are not his children? Mm. <laughs> God can answer the prayer of a non-believer. Uh, can I say definitively that he has never answered the prayer of a non-believer? No. Can I say specifically that I can point to examples where he has? Uh, maybe if I thought hard enough, although I, none come to mind off the top of my head, at least biblically. Um, maybe you could take Cornelius. Cornelius was known as a, a man of God, uh, and he received a vision from the Lord, and Peter received a vision from the Lord, and God told Peter, hey, you need to go to Cornelius' house because he's a, a guy who fears the Lord and, and wants to be saved. So maybe you could point there and say that that's an example where you saw an unbeliever really seeking God and, and wanting God to respond to him, and God sent Peter to share the gospel with him. And Cornelius was one of the first Gentile converts, right? So um, maybe there's an example. I'll say this, though. There's a unique relationship between the, the father and a, and a believer that doesn't exist between the father and an unbeliever. And that unique relationship is the fact that what the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus uh, lives, always lives to make intercession for us so that he is always interceding on our behalf. Therefore, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of God to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. An unbeliever doesn't have that promise. Um, I can tell you without question that an unbeliever has no confidence that God will answer their prayer the way a believer has confidence that God will answer their prayer. Uh, does that mean that God doesn't? No. It doesn't mean that he doesn't. It, it, it's totally possible that he could. Um, but the, there's that 
enormous infinite chasm between the confidence that a believer has approaching the Lord in prayer and a confidence an unbeliever has in approaching the Lord in prayer. Fair? Okay. Okay, bear with me because I'm really bad at explaining things. Okay. um, Say you're having a conversation with someone who's professing to be a believer and they don't believe that everything in the Bible is influenced by the Holy Spirit, but rather it's like men who are writing and a lot of the things that are written, especially in the New Testament, are uh, cultural, like cultural or politically influenced. And then there's like so many things that were not included because of that. How would you like, how would you talk to someone? (laughs) What just happened? That was you? I don't know. I got scared because I thought that was me. (laughs) All right. um, Yes. Back to your question. Um, As far as the things that were left out, I mean, the manuscripts don't, the manuscript evidence doesn't bear that out. And we we talked about that in this series. There's over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament specifically that date back to within a hundred years of the original writings of the, the New Testament letters and, and gospels and epistles. So um, when you take those manuscripts and while not every one of those manuscripts is a complete book, but when you take all of those 5,800, which is way more than Plato or Aristotle or Homer or any of those, and you begin to lay those next to each other, you see the similarities, you, you see where there's any discrepancies, where there's any differences in, in and among them. And the Bible that we hold today is, is overwhelmingly accurate based on the manuscript evidence that these other books don't have compared to any other book that from that, that time period that you want to hold up there. So to suggest that there's things that were supposed to be that weren't included uh, is, is just, it's not, it doesn't, it's a claim with no evidence. The burden of proof is on that person, not on the, the person that believes in the, the inerrancy of the authority of scripture. Um, as to the, the inspiration of the New Testament, uh, you know, you've got, you do have second t- or yeah, Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuke, correction. That idea that all Scripture is, is breathed out by God um, is is certainly uh, one that I would point to. I mean, that's that's dealing with the Old Testament primarily at that point, but at the same time, we can bring it into the New Testament as well. And, and Peter says this in Second uh, Peter chapter one. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible itself testifies to the fact that it is inerrant and authoritative and inspired. And the fact that these books were written originally, attested by both liberal uh, liberal critics and conservative critics, Christians and unchristians alike will will both admit the early dating of the the New Testament letters there. There were eyewitnesses that could have stood up and said, this is bunk, this is not true, this is wrong, or you left out this book, you left out this that book, you left out that thing that Jesus said, you left out the part where Jesus said that all gays go to heaven and stop bothering them. And that just didn't happen. There's no evidence of that. There's no writings like that. So what we find is we find John 17, again, a world that hates us and a world that hates our Savior, saying... We're going to do everything that we can to make our hatred and our vitriol towards Christ known. And so that's what they're doing right now is they're continually coming back to that. And what they want to do is they want to make cultural things that were never cultural. When Paul's writing about in Romans chapter one, that, that homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord, he's 
putting things in there, he's talking about people's eternity at stake when he's talking about these things. He's not talking about whether or not it's sinful to wear a hat in church or not. That's, that's a cultural item, but he's not connecting that to your salvation. Romans chapter one, he's talking about the fact that God is turning people over. That means God's like, hey, I'm done with you. I gave you the gospel, I pursued you, I, and, and you held your arms out to me like this the whole time, and I'm giving you what you want. I'm, I'm letting you go. And that's terrifying, that's horrifying. So to all of a sudden think that, that all of a sudden that because we're now more enlightened, because we're 2,000 years later or whatever, that, that that's now a cultural thing and not a moral thing is just plain and flat out hatred of God that, that doesn't want to deal with the things that, that God has clearly prescribed in Scripture. Um, yeah, that's my impassioned plea for that. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. Um, again, manuscript evidence doesn't support the idea that, that there's enormous sections of scripture missing. It's, it's quite the opposite. And uh, in the date of writing and the fact that, that these were written during the time there were eyewitnesses to Christ's ministry, there were eyewitnesses to these other things. Uh, and then the fact that, that this, these are not cultural instructions that are given uh, when you're dealing with, with these big issues that the world wants to, to, to take and throw out as, as lifestyle choices anymore. Anything else? Maybe one or two more. Yeah. Here comes the mic. Okay, so before coming to Compass, I used to go to a Jewish Messianic congregation. Okay. So basically, it's Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Right. Um, do you think it's, I guess, appropriate for them to participate in some of the traditional hmm. Jewish holidays like Rosh Hashanah, which is like the new Jewish New Year, and right. um, Hanukkah and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a salvation issue. Let me point to the big one, which is Passover, right? What was Passover anticipating? Christ, right? I mean, it, it was anticipating Christ. The Passover lamb, John the, ba John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, behold, what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, that's a, a direct allusion back to the, the Passover. And so the Passover has been fulfilled in Jesus. Um, if, if someone in a, who's, who's ethnically Jewish wanted to, participate in the Passover as a Jewish believer, a Jewish Christian, I would just say, you know, make sure that, that the thrust and the point and the aim of this is Christ in that you are showing how, how that this feast was in anticipation of Christ who fulfilled this perfectly. He is our ultimate Passover lamb. And so we're not looking back to Exodus anymore. We're looking back to the cross now going, he's delivered us from a slavery that no you know, earthly lamb could ever deliver us from. And so praise God for that. So is it, is it wrong? Is it sinful? No, I would say it's not wrong or sinful, but I would just say, I really hope that, that these feasts and these celebrations are, are celebrated as they all were intended to be as anticipations for the Christ coming and fulfilling the law and fulfilling, um, all of, of the things that they were, they were anticipating. Um, even the Feast of Booths, I mean, the, the idea that the water was poured out in, in that, and Jesus, during the Feast of Booths, standing up and saying, I am the, the, the living water, whoever thirsts, let him come to me. Man, that was huge. That was pointing back to that feast and going, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that you guys have been waiting for. It's, it's me. So I, I would say, as believers, you know, at, at Compass, we don't, we don't do that, right? Um, we're not ethnically Jewish either. Uh, but I would just say, just if it's going to be done, it really needs to make sure that it's, it's done in a way that is pointing to Christ and holding Christ up as the one that's the ultimate fulfillment of it. Fair? Okay. One more? 
Really? Not even one more. I mean, this is the last question, so it would be major. Yes, you have already asked many questions, and that's all right. I appreciate that. You got the ball rolling. Oh, Pang. You turn it off so that you don't. Um, so one of my students asked a question during one of our small group discussions. It was on the topic of uh, the wrath of God. And so he, he was just like, so I know, like, God, like, God creating, like, us as humans. Um, he has, like, a, his elect. Like, he has this group of people that he's, he's saving. And knowing that he'd had to destroy a good handful of them. Like, so, like, what was the whole point? Like, what was the point of creating us? Wow. You saved a big one for the end, huh? Wow. Okay. Um, first off, I need to preach for a second. Um, don't worry, I'll still get you out in 10 minutes, I think. Um, yes. So let me put it this way. Uh, every one of God's attributes, every one of his attributes is infinitely worthy of praise and glory, magnification, and full display, right? Hell is not the absence of God. God is present in hell, but his, it's his wrath that is present in hell, being poured out on those that have rejected Christ. The existence of hell is still for God's glory. And that's an incredibly uncomfortable concept to wrap our minds around. But just like when I experience sickness, I appreciate my, my health all that more, right? When I come face to face with, with sin and, and what is evil and what is wicked, I appreciate what is good that much more as well, right? So the, the, the contrast of good and evil, the contrast <coughs> of those that are under the wrath of God and those that are not are ultimately in the end to glorify God. Um, Romans chapter nine, Romans chapter nine, 14, Paul says just as plainly and as bluntly as he can, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, so Pang, he's prophesying this, this question right here. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And, and so, like I said with marriage... It's, it's more than marriage. It's the entirety of this, this, this life that we live. None of this life that we live is about us. It's not. None of it. 
Everything that God does by necessity for him to continue to be God means that everything he does is for himself and his glory entirely. And that's where Paul's argument in Romans 9 comes in here for us to say that it's, it's, it's arrogance on the part of the created to, to shake the fist at the creator and say, why did you make me this way? Because it's to say, it's not about you as the creator, as, as God, it's about me as the creation. And it's about my definition of what is right. We want to say that's not fair, but let me slow you down and say the one who created your ability to know what is fair and unfair is the one that you're accusing of being unfair. And your ability to understand what is fair and unfair is marred by the fall, is marred by the sin. And that goes back to what I said at the very beginning of all this, that the fall was monumentally catastrophic. And so as much as it's an uncomfortable, and it is an uncomfortable tension, to say that there is those who are predestined, those who are elect to be in eternity with God and those who are not, it's... It's reality. And those who are not elect are not condemned more to hell than their own sins have already driven them there. In other words, God is not sending them more to hell than their own actions and sins have already condemned them. It's not a greater degree all of a sudden. Um, and it's, it's so hard in this question, I mean, the last question of the night, right? It's so hard to walk away from this with any sort of sense of, of comfort. And, and quite honestly, I don't know that we should walk away from it with any sort of sense of, of comfort. It's a tension that we have to let exist. But let me encourage you, rather than debate and yell and, and throw your fist in the air and everything else, let me encourage you this. The great grace in all of this is that God has not given us an election radar, right? He has not given me a... a a predestination scope to be able to throw on my Bible to know, okay, yeah, that person is, that person's not, that person. So what, what the urgency that that needs to drive in us is not, a, not an angst and a frustration and a, I'm done with this walk away, but a, a, a saying of, okay, so let me go out and, and, and take the gospel to as many people as I possibly can. Let me, let me be used right now to go and see as many people saved as I possibly can because we don't, we don't know what that number is. Nobody knows what that number is except for God. But there is a number. The last person will eventually be saved and Christ will return for the bride. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not the right of the finite mind to be able to wrap their mind around the, the infinite in that. I'm not asking you to be okay with it and to say, well, great, and skip out of here with a smile on your face about it. But I am asking you to again, bow the knee to, to the creator in this one, to submit to what we find to be plainly true in, in scripture in this one, and to understand that even God's wrath is something that is glorifying to him. Um, it magnifies his holiness when he punishes and, and pours out his wrath on that which is unholy. Um, it also magnifies his grace. And so it's, it's an uncomfortable tension, but it's one that we... We can't resolve. Do you have a follow-up to that? Because I feel like I just muddied the waters. Okay.
Yeah. And, and Romans 9 is, <laughs> is a great text on that. The reference that he makes back to Pharaoh is perfect. God clearly tells Moses, Look, I'm going to show my power through Pharaoh. Um, yeah. Whoo! Anybody else got a soft toss, easy, happy-go-lucky question to end the night on? Okay. Yes, next Sunday is Thanksgiving feast. There you go. That's a happy go. We can go eat our feelings at the turkey table. Um, so if you guys haven't signed up yet, you can sign up to bring a side dish or a dessert. Um, err on the side of dessert because let's face it, right? I mean, I'd rather have too many pies than too many green bean casseroles. Um, it's a true story. Every day of the week, it's a true story. Um, yeah, so, and if you're bringing cranberry sauce, it, it needs to come out of a can. Just remember that. It needs to slurp out of the can with the lines on it. Yes, Cody, you and I are kindred spirits in that. All right, let me pray, and uh, we're done. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that, uh, God, there are answers to your your. These, these questions, Lord. We thank you that, um, that you're a God of all wisdom. And that even like this last question, when our minds bump up against that glass ceiling of our own finitude, where we feel like we should be able to go so much further than we can, Lord, I pray that we would have the humility to say that, God, you are God and we are not. And we would have the humility to be able to say, I'm going to hold in tension what I see in scripture and yet what my flesh can't fully understand and comprehend. And there may be never a time that we fully understand it and comprehend it. And so let us be like Paul in Romans chapter 11 as, as he's concluding that when he says, how unsearchable are your ways, how inscrutable, how deep and wonderful your wisdom. God, may we be driven there by our own inability to fully comprehend who you are and how you operate. Your ways are not our ways. Your, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we confess that, Lord, eagerly we confess that. And so, God, we pray that as we go from here tonight, throughout the rest of our week, that you'd be pleased, honored, and glorified uh, with how we represent you until Christ comes back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.